Good morning, church. I do love and appreciate you. And I know that for some of you, when you come here on a Sunday morning, you've been through one of the hardest weeks you've ever had. And I know for others of you, you've been through one of the greatest weeks you've ever had. And for others, it's just been another week full of blessings and challenges. And I love the fact, don't you? I love the fact that when we come together here, that we share everything. We not only share handshakes and hugs, we not only share songs together, we not only share our faith together, but we, we mingle our emotions together, don't we? We share our joy with each other, and we share our grief with each other, and we help each other and bless each other, and that's why I love you so very much, and I pray that you do that this morning, that you not only share handshakes and hugs and hellos and greetings and songs with each other, but that you share your life with each other, because life can be so very great and so very horrible, can't it? That's life, isn't it? Life can be so very wonderful and so very beautiful and so very exciting and so very grand and it can be so very devastating. I was thinking about a few weeks ago, my family and I, we got to take the boys for the first time to the West Coast and they got to see the Pacific Ocean for the first time. We went to the beach in Malibu and it was beautiful. The sand was great. The, the waves were crashing in. There were beautiful rock formations. It was just absolutely awesome. But I'll tell you, as a, as a kid who grew up in Kansas and who didn't see the ocean until I was a married man, I mean, it still makes me a little bit nervous. I've heard too many stories about riptides and people. And so, like, I didn't want to let go of the boys the whole time we were there. But that's kind of life, isn't it? That's kind of life. You're standing in a, at a beautiful place, and it's, it's beautiful, and it's breathtaking, and it's wonderful, and it's awesome, but there's still fear and trepidation because you know something can still go horribly wrong. I was thinking about my boys when my boys came into the world, when, from the moment that I heard that Holly was expecting, and even when they were born, it's beautiful and wonderful and exciting and awesome, but it's terrifying as well, isn't it? And you think about all the things that can go wrong. There's so much beauty in the world and so much pain in the world. And if we're not careful, we can, we can get so focused on one or the other. We can focus all of our attention on the, on the beauty and say everything is wonderful, everything is great, and just kind of go through life and sort of deny or downplay the things that are broken and wrong, the things that are so very painful. Or on the other hand, we can get so focused on the things that are broken and wrong that we forget about the things that are beautiful and wonderful. And that's what I love about the Garden of Eden. See, this story, this story of the Garden of Eden gives us a framework. The Garden of Eden gives us a framework to understand both the beauty and the pain in the world. This story, and that's why we've spent a whole month on this story, because this story of the Garden of Eden gives us a framework by which we can understand both the beauty and the pain in the world. We can look and we can affirm the world is so very good, isn't it? We could look at a, a mountaintop or an ocean or a child 
or the people that we love, and we can say the world is so very good. But then we can ask, why does such a good world have so much wrong with it? Why does such a good world have so much wrong with it? And, and, here's the most important question, and who can fix it? Who can fix it? See, the Garden of Eden gives us this framework to understand what's wrong with the world and what's right with the world and in whom we can place our hope and in whom we can place our trust because this story is all about trust. It's all about hope. It's all about faith and knowing and learning and getting it deeply ingrained in us that sin is what's wrong with the world and God is what's right. And God is the one who fixes things. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to conclude our series on the Garden of Eden by looking at Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17 this morning. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Of course, Adam and Eve have eaten of the, free, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've recognized their shame. They've tried in, in futility to cover over their shame. And God has confronted them. He's cursed the serpent. He has confronted Eve about her sin. And then he says to Adam in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, that you shall not eat of it. Now, let me just stop right there for a second. This word that's translated listen, in the Hebrew, it's shema, shema. You recognize that word shema? It, the, the Jewish people have long said the shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. My family says that every night before we go to bed, the shema, listen, hear, and God confronts Adam that you listened not to my voice, but to the voice of your wife. That's not to say that husbands shouldn't listen to their wives. It's to say you shouldn't listen to anyone who tells you to do anything that I told you not to do. You listen to someone else when someone else told you to do what I told you not to do. This whole story is about what happens when we don't shema. What happens when we don't listen to God? When we listen to those who tell us to do what God says, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't take that path. And God says, don't do that. And somebody else says, oh, no, no, it's okay. Do that. You've got to trust God. This is what happens when we don't trust God. And because of that, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Cursed is the ground. He says, you'll eat of it, and that's the, the blessing, right? You'll, you'll eat of it, and that's good. You're still going to get fruit from the ground. You're still going to get food from the ground. You're still going to eat from the, the ground. The, the ground is still going to produce food for you to eat. There's still going to be 
blessings, but the blessings are going to be, as we said last week, frustrated, right? The blessings are going to be frustrated. And this doesn't just affect farming, right? This, this curse isn't just about farming. It's about everything. It's about everything you do. It's about everything I do. It's about every effort we put forth that everything good comes at a price. Everything good is also hard and challenging. All the goodness and all the blessings and all the nourishment and all of the abundance that the garden had is now going to be frustrated because of this curse, because of humanity's sin. And no longer is it going to be easy to be nourished and to be blessed. Now all of the goodness, now all of the good things are going to come at a price. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So much for the serpent's lie, right? So much for the serpent's lie, because the serpent said, you shall not surely die. And God says he was wrong. He was wrong. Because now from the, the ground you came and you will return. From the dust you came and you will return to the dust. You will die. Now God has been incredibly merciful. God has been slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love in that they're not going to die immediately. But this becomes humanity's fate. And every single one of us, even if we weren't born with this knowledge, at some point, at some point, every single one of us have to come to the realization that at some point, to dust, I will return. And from this day forward, Adam had to live his entire life with that knowledge. Someday, one day, and I don't know what day it will be. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be the next day, or the day after that, but every day, Adam had to get out of bed, and he had to go out to the field, and he had to work, and he had to provide for his family, knowing that this was his fate, this was his destiny, he would return to the dust. And humanity has had that knowledge ever since. That fear of death, knowing that at some point, at some point, ourselves and the people we love will go back to the dust. This is the constant com companion with which we have had to live ever since the fall. That at some point, at some point, this mortal body of mine will go back to the dust from which it came. This realization, this fear we have had to live with every day of our lives. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says that Eve, the Hebrew word for Eve, sounds like the word for life giver. She's the mother of all living. Do we see how this story, even in the consequences, even woven into this part of the story, there are still, yes, there are still frustrations. And there are still consequences, but there are also blessings, and there's life, 
And God says he's going to continue to partner with humanity to bring life and blessings. Eve is going to be the mother of all living. Life. Life. There's going to continue to be life in spite of the consequences, in spite of the fall, in spite of the sin, in spite of what's happened. There's still going to be life. And God is going to continue to partner with humanity to bring life and blessings into the world. God's not done yet. This isn't the end of the story. This is the beginning of the story. And sin isn't going to stop God from doing what God intends to do. Amen? Sin isn't going to stop God from what God intends to do. And God says, I'm going to continue to partner with humanity to bring life and blessings to the world. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I mean, the whole thing is just so bittersweet, isn't it? On the one hand... On the one hand, we can say God clothed their shame. He covered their shame. He covered their nakedness. This illustrates a fact that will be stated over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And then when you get to the New Testament, it is personified in Jesus. It becomes manifest in Jesus that the Lord our God is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what we see right here. The Lord our God, Yahweh Elohim, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God says, you're naked, you're ashamed, and I will cover your shame. You have done an inadequate job of covering your shame, but I will cover your shame. But notice, he covers their shame with what? With skins. That kind of implies something had to, what? Die. Something had to die for their shame to be covered. This is what happens, isn't it? Their sin, because they didn't trust God, because they didn't listen to God, because they thought, I've got a better idea. I've got a different way of doing things. Your way is not the only way. I can do the things I want to do in the way I want to do them. And because they didn't listen to him and they didn't trust him, now sin and death and brokenness have entered the world. Something had to die. But God says, you are the pinnacle of my creation, humanity. You, not just Adam and Eve, but you, all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve that are sitting in this room or watching online or anywhere else in the world, every person with whom you come into contact, every person with whom you come into contact, God says, you are the pinnacle of my creation. You are my image bearers. And you didn't listen to me, and you didn't trust me, and you didn't have faith in me, and you rebelled against me, but I love you anyway, and I'm going to continue to partner with humanity to bring life and blessings, and I'm going to cover your shame. I'm going to make it okay. I'm going to fix what you have broken. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Now, initially, that tree wasn't off limits, was it? Initially, the, the tree of life wasn't off limits. There was only one tree that was off limits, and it was that tree that they chose to eat from. They didn't listen to God and trust God, but if they had listened to God and trust God, then they could have eaten from the tree of life. But now because they said, I want to eat from the one tree we're not supposed to eat from, because they didn't listen and they didn't trust, now this tree, the tree of life, is off limits. Now we could look at this and we could just see, we could just see consequences, but there's also a blessing in this, isn't there? Now that there's so much brokenness, now that there's so much tension, now that there's so much animosity, now that Eve's desires are contrary to her husband's, and now that he rules over her, now that they're pushing and pulling in different directions, now that there's, now that there's a curse upon the ground, who would want to live forever in a world like that? Who would want to live forever on cursed ground? Who would want to live forever with tension and animosity and enmity? Who would want to live forever with struggle and brokenness? And so even in this, in cutting them off from the tree of life, there is blessing and grace because of the brokenness. Look at verse 23. Therefore, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Listen to these words, sent him out and drove out the man. These are exile type words, aren't they? Exile. Exile. And then we read through the Bible and this is what the entire narrative of Scripture becomes about, isn't it? Exile. Exiled people. We see as they, they move out of the, the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and they, the children of Israel move into the promised land, that the people in the land, the Canaanites, are supposed to be driven out, right? They're supposed to be exiled because of their sin. And then the children of Israel move into the promised land as if it's a, a brand new Garden of Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. But from the very beginning, they chose not to trust God, not to listen to God, not to obey God. And because they didn't listen and because they didn't trust, even though Yahweh Elohim, the Lord our God, he was gracious and merciful, incredibly slow to anger and incredibly abounding in steadfast love, eventually he drove them out. He exiled them again, didn't he? But over and over and over and over again, we learn what God does with exiled people. What does God do about exiled people? God is in the redemption business. God is in the redemption business. And this, this is one of the most important, and I'm afraid, misunderstood words in the Bible. Redemption. What does it mean for God to be in the redemption business? What does it mean for God to redeem people? Well, as the children of Israel go into the promised land, and as they take up residence there, God wants them to understand, you're, you're renters. I'm the landowner, you're the renters, you're the tenants. 
Now, I'm going to give you the land on which you live as an inheritance, and you're going to live there. And your children are going to live there, and your children's 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 children. It's going to be your in, in ancestral land. This is going to be your plot of land, but I'm the landowner and you're the renters. And God wants them to understand what it looks like. What if, what if you become poor? Like, what if your specific family in your specific tribe, what if you become poor? And what if you can't afford to live on your land anymore? And what if you kind of have to sell off your, your piece of land and move away so that you can survive? Well, Leviticus chapter 25, if you want to jot that down in your notes, but Leviticus chapter 25 explains what redemption looks like. And this is what it looked like. If you became poor and you had to sell off a piece of your land, or maybe you had to sell yourself off as an indentured servant, if you had to sell yourself into slavery, or you had to sell your land to someone else so that you could survive because you became poor, it was the obligation of your relatives to buy you back. It was the obligation of your relatives to buy your land back for you so that you could come home. Are you familiar with the book of Ruth? Remember the book of Ruth and, and her mother-in-law, Naomi? This is what happened with Naomi's family. Naomi's family moved away, and then her husband died, and her sons died, and now she comes back to the land of Israel with her daughter-in-law, and she doesn't have anybody to redeem her, to purchase her freedom to come back home, to live on her land, and to have her inheritance back until Boaz comes. And Boaz is a righteous man, and Boaz is her kinsman redeemer, and he purchases her ability to come back to her land. We might think of it maybe like a pawn shop, you know, like a pawn shop. Like if, if, if we had no other recourse and, and maybe we had this, this inheritance from our family, we had this heirloom that was incredibly valuable and we, it, it pained us, but we took it down to the pawn shop and we, we gave it to them so that we could have some money to eat. A kinsman redeemer would be somebody who goes down to the pawn shop on our behalf and buys back our inheritance so that we can have back what belongs to us. And that's how redemption works. It's kinsman redeemers. It's relatives who say, I love you and I want you to have back what's yours. But if there was no kinsman redeemer, if there was no relative who could buy your way back into your ancestral land, then God would redeem it for you. And there was supposed to be a, a year of jubilee, a day of jubilee, a time where all the debt got erased, where the, the servants, the slaves got freed, and everybody got to go back home. So if you had sold your land away because you became poor, or your father had sold your land away because he became poor, then you and your family get to go back home to the land God gave to you. That's what redemption is. God redeems his people. And, and that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer who comes to redeem his people so that they get back what is theirs by inheritance. And Jesus is God declaring it's the year of Jubilee. Set the captives free. Everybody gets to go back home. Because this is what God does with exiled people. 
This is what God does with exiled people. He redeems the exiles. So the story of the Bible ends with God's people being exiled from the Garden of Eden. It begins that way, and it ends with the book of Revelation, in which the people of God are welcomed back into the paradise of God, and the city of God comes down out of heaven for God's people so that he can be with them, and they have their inheritance back because God is in the redemption business. And I can't talk about the curse and the fall without talking about Romans chapter 8. So look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. Romans chapter 8 and verse 20, because this is exactly what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 8. He says, For the creation, the creation was subjected to futility. The NIV, if you've got the NIV, it actually uses the word frustration. That's what we've been talking about, isn't it? Creation was subjected to frustration. The ground, the earth, all of creation was subjected to frustration, to futility, not willingly, not because it wanted to, but because of him who subjected it in, here's our word, in what, church? In hope, in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul says, not only will God's children inherit glory, the creation itself that is longing to be set free, that is frustrated, and it is, isn't it? Creation is frustrated right now. But Paul says at some point, Jesus will set it free because God is in the redemption business. Not just, not just one patch of ground, but the whole creation. The whole creation. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, I love the way Paul sort of put, puts it in the already, like we already have the Spirit, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, but then we're still longing for something else. We're still hoping for something else. We're still anticipating something else. It's almost like you and I have the Garden of Eden in our hearts. Through the Spirit, what was lost in the Garden of Eden is being regained right now in the Spirit. You and I get to be little pieces of the Garden everywhere we go because in you, through the Spirit, you have life. And you have abundance. And you have ministry. And you have the presence of God in you through the Spirit. But through the Spirit and in the Spirit, we still long and anticipate for, Paul says, the redemption of our what? Our bodies. And every day we have a reminder, don't we? Every day we have a reminder that from the dust we came, and to the dust we shall return. That these bodies are wearing out and getting old and getting sick and we lose the people we love. Either in old age or in youth, the rich and the poor, 
in every country in the world, we're all, we're all plagued with this reality of our own mortality. And he says, in the spirit, we long for and hope for and anticipate the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies are going to be resurrected and they're going to be redeemed. And we're going to get back what was lost in Eden. We're going to get back a transformed, immortal body. We will be changed. This world as it is will pass away. And this body as it is will pass away. But they will both be redeemed. Because God is in the redemption business. Look at verse 24. For in this, here's our word, in this hope, in this hope we were saved. Now, now hope that is seen is not hope. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we, we have the Spirit and we have life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God right now in the here and now, but our bodies are still wearing out and our world is still frustrated by the curse. But we wait for redemption. We wait for creation to be redeemed. We wait for our resurrection and our mortal bodies to be redeemed. And we wait for it in hope. Now, hope has been ruined, ruined by People, we've ruined that word. We've stolen the meaning right out of it. We say, well, I, I hope that happens. I don't know, but I hope that happens. Nonsense. That's not hope. Hope is confident expectation. Confident expectation for what I can't see now, but what I know is going to happen. What I see is a body that wears out. What I see is family members who hurt and struggle who are frustrated by the world we live in. But what I know is coming is redemption. We're not just our spirits are redeemed, but our bodies are redeemed and creation is redeemed because this is what the Bible says from beginning to end. I love this quote. There's a quote in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 14 that's one of my favorite things that anybody in Scripture ever says. And this woman in 2 Samuel 14, 14 says this, God devises his means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Isn't that good? That's what God does. That's what God did for the children of Israel that were dispersed not only in Assyria and Babylon, but throughout the world. God devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And that's what he does, not just for Israel, but for all of the children of Adam and Eve. Every nation under heaven, every tribe and tongue, this multi-ethnic family that Jesus is bringing together, this is what he's up to, is that God devises means for the banished one not to remain an outcast and you were an outcast, and I was an outcast. We were exiled from the presence of God, but through Jesus and through the Spirit, we're being gathered together, and, and we hope for and anticipate the coming redemption and that day on which all of God's people will be gathered together in the new Jerusalem. We hope for and anticipate and eagerly await that day because this is what God does. God devises means 
that the banished one will not remain an outcast, but the only way home, the only way home from exile is to trust in God's power to redeem. That's the story of Eden, isn't it? That's the story of Scripture, that the only way home from exile is to trust in God's power to redeem. I don't know about you, but I don't want to remain in exile forever. In my spirit, I'm already reconciled to God. But I don't want my body to remain in exile forever. I don't want God's creation to remain in exile forever. But the only way to come home from exile is to trust in God's power to redeem. And our failure to trust is what got us in trouble in the first place. That's what this story is all about. You can call it trust. You can call it faith. You can call it submission. You can call it obedience. But we have to trust in God's power to redeem. The the power to redeem, the power to bring you into God's presence, to live with him forever, to end the exile, It, it won't be found in you, and it won't be found in politics, And it won't be found in your power or your strength or your wisdom or your insight. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Trusting in him. Trusting in his power to redeem. And that trust begins when we're baptized. And we trust him to bring us home from exile. And then we're raised up. But we're raised up, Romans 6, to walk in newness of life. To to walk in a way that a redeemed person walks in. To live as someone who is being redeemed. To trust him with the way we live our lives. What does that look like? Sermon on the Mount. That's what it looks like. Sermon on the Mount. That's what it looks like. Matthew 5 through 7. Go read that. That's what it looks like to live as someone who is being brought back home from exile. To live as someone who trusts God and his power to redeem. Let's do that today. Maybe you haven't been baptized into Jesus, and you've been thinking about it, and you've been toying with the idea. Come home. Come home to God's family. Come home out of the cold. Come home out of exile. And if you have been baptized into Jesus, keep trusting God's power to redeem. I know it gets tiring, I know it gets tough. And there are days when we say, why and how long and when will this be over? And God gives us his spirit and his people and he gives us hope to anticipate not only what is, but what will be through his power to redeem. So let's Go from here, today and every day, trusting in God's power to redeem because that's the only way home from exile. If we can help you in any way this morning, our shepherds would love to visit with you after service in the prayer room or right now, you can come forward as we stand and sing this song.